Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com before history is written it's played before it's frozen in time it's fought one shift at a time before it's etched in silver it's carved in ice what happens next will last forever the Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What the Fab, a fans first sports network fantasy baseball show where there are no silly questions. I'm Sarah Sanchez. I write about the Chicago Cubs for the SB Nation Cubs site, Bleed Cubby Blue. And as always, I am here to break down what's going on in fantasy baseball with some of the greatest minds in the industry in a way that strives to demystify this wonderful game a bit while bridging the gap between your home league and the NFBC main event. Today, we are recapping the Great Lakes Area Roto Fantasy League, uh, known as GLARF part of the Earth Network of Fantasy Leagues. We literally have these leagues all over the country. There's Nerf and Warf and Barf and Glarf, the greatest league, which has won the overall two years in a row. And I am so grateful to be joined by my fellow league member and friend, Mike Carter. Mike is a senior writer at Fantrax, which is a great place to draft. If you haven't drafted there, make sure you do a draft or two at Fantrax. It's awesome. He's talking baseball all the time. At, at Nine Inning Know It All, and is the co host of the Fantasy Baseball Beat at, with at Triple Play Fantasy. He is also one of my go to people when I'm about to draft a new format and always takes the time to answer my questions. So I'm sure he will take the time to answer your questions. I'm thrilled to have him join me here at What the Fab. How's it going, Mike? Sarah, not too bad for an old fat guy hanging out here. I'm doing okay. It's Friday night and uh, getting ready to go on spring break here. We'll get out of town for a few days. I'm looking forward to that. And I have to add to what you said about Glarf, which is this. You were the champion of Glarf last year with a miraculous comeback on the last weekend that we talked about all weekend when we were doing Glarf together, didn't we? Like It was an amazing thing. For those of you who don't know, Sarah, you got to tell them about it. <laughs> well, if you insist. Um, now, honestly, I went into the final day of Glarf convinced that the best I could do was finish third. And I was I really wanted to finish third. Like I had made wait my I spent the last of my fab. We'll talk about what that means and how that all works out as we go on here. But spent the last of my fab to like pick up some guys. I put Yusei Kikuchi in there just in case he got some middle inning work and maybe vultured a win for himself. And I really, I was like six and a half points down going into the final day of the season there. You're not supposed to be able to make up 
six and a half points Mm -hmm. in any Roto League, really, but let alone a 15-team league. And it was just this weird set of circumstances where a handful of categories, including wins and runs and RBIs, were really clustered together. Like there were one or two wins, one or two runs, one or two RBIs separating like five of us. And so I looked up with about two games left to go. If you recall, uh, the last day of the season last year, the Mets uh, were rain delayed. And so their game took a little bit longer. And I looked up with about two games left. I realized that Clayton Kershaw had gotten a win. Yusei Kikuchi did, in fact, vulture a win <laughs> with the Blue Jays. And mm-hmm. the I had moved into first place. And Jenny Butler, who we all thought was going to win, that there was no way anybody could overtake Jenny in the league. Uh, was one point behind me or half a point behind me and had Daniel Vogelbach sitting on her team and could theoretically overtake me if Vogelbach got some runs or RBIs. And he did not. And I wound up winning Glarth. And honestly, I think it's kind of fluky. Like, I I, I, I mean, I, it's a championship and championship belts are forever. And I have one and I'm mm-hmm. very excited about it. It's one of the <laughs> coolest prizes I've ever won in my life. But it's, it was a good lesson of don't give up on your team. Don't feel mm-hmm. like, oh, well, I can't win, so I'm not going to make these moves. I can't win, so I'm not going to go to the waiver wire. Like Those last $5 that I spent to make sure that I had active players in those last three days in that little half week mm-hmm. were the difference between winning that league and not winning that league. And that was a really good lesson for me as a player. Well, I always say this, and I you know, I work as a teacher in, in uh, my day job, right? And I always tell people there's no such thing as luck. You know, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And you were prepared and you got the opportunity and you seized it and your players performed and you put yourself in a great position to be there. So I don't think you were lucky at all. I think you're an incredibly skilled player and uh, one of the best that I know, honestly. And uh, I think that's what happened. You know, you won. I remember waking up on Monday morning thinking I was going to see that you were in the top three. But when I saw that at the top, I refreshed. I was like, what? It was so cool. It was like really awesome to see that. So I was, I admit, I was kind of panicking a bit because the win stat takes a minute to show up on the NFBC site, which is where Glarth and a few other leagues that Mike and I both play in is housed. And I was writing, uh, back channeling with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs, Rotographs a little bit. And I was like, it, do wins are wins on a delay at the NFBC because I think I just won my league but it's not showing up yet he's like I'm waiting for the Kershaw win too and I was like oh my god that's <laughs> awesome that's awesome uh so thank you Mike I I love I love the Glarp league I I have to say you know we're gonna set the stage here a little bit but this is a this is a tough league this is one of the two toughest leagues I play in each year the first is uh Tout Wars which we did that draft recap with Alex Bass. It's the first episode. If you haven't listened to it, go back and, and take a listen to that one. Alex was really awesome to recap that draft with. But Glarf is right up there. It's a bunch of really high stakes players. These are people who play in the NFBC main event. They are not messing around with their fab bids. The first time we did a fab run in this league, I was so far off the market in terms of the bids that I was putting out. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to bid like $23 on this player. The player goes for like 97. I was like, okay, (laughs) we are not messing around. Like people want their hitters and they want their pitchers and they are prepared to go to the mattresses for those dudes. Um, And nobody has an empty lineup, right? Like nobody is going to leave a player that's hurt in their lineup for two, two weeks or three weeks. You are not getting any easy points in this league. So it is, it is a truly great league. I am thrilled to be a part of it. I am 
unbelievably thrilled to have won it and um, looking forward to this year. We had our draft in person uh, in March, uh, earlier in March. And honestly, I am really excited to dive into this with you a little bit because one of the things Mm -hmm. that I think is so unique about Clark, Clark is a standard league, 15 teams, standard roto, same categories that you see everywhere, average home runs, runs, RBIs and stolen bases for hitters, wins, strikeouts, ERA, whip, and saves for pitchers, very standard in that sense. But what makes it not standard to my mind is that it's at the NFBC, so there's no injured list in this league. Mm -hmm. You only have seven reserve spots, and that is your whole bench. And you might think that sounds like a lot, but it really is not. And as we get to my team, where I have Reese Hoskins, who just (laughs) tore his ACL and is out for the season, uh, you'll see that that's created actually... Some, some situations that I'm going to have to deal with the first week. And if I don't deal with them the first week, I'm going to fall behind. That's 30 home runs that I just lost and I, I've got to replace them somehow. The other thing is that when you're drafting in person, it really just sets a different tenor and tone and stage for everything. So mm-hmm. I think I'm going to start, you know, Mike, you do a lot of drafts. You do a lot of standard roto drafts. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you prepare for the Glarf draft any differently than you prepare for those drafts? Absolutely. Um, and the reason for that, I, I could talk about this for a long time and I will try not to, uh, bore the listeners here by talking about what my process is like, but Glarf is just a different animal. It's by far the toughest league that I play in. Um, the best players that I know as friends and as, uh, opponents are in this league and it's different because what I've really found myself doing over the last couple of years is really being involved in a lot of slow drafts. And when I have the slow draft, I don't feel that pressure. I don't feel the pressure to make up my mind quickly. I might look at it and say, you know, I'm going to have a cup of coffee and think about what my next play is going to be here. And I, you have that time to sort of let it ferment a little bit and, and then make a decision. You might reach out to somebody. I might reach out to you. I might reach out to some of my other friends and say, hey, this is where I'm at. What do you think? Like when I was doing the Seiya Suzuki and I was I was hammering you with that, I'm like, hey, what do you think about this guy? Like, what's he going to look like this year? And I trust your opinion. So I, I go with that. Glarf is different because you have a one minute clock. So the queue is your best friend. You've got to have eight to 10 different possibilities. In my mind, you have to have eight to 10 different possibilities in your queue because it goes so quickly and these people know what they're doing and they don't care what I'm doing. They're looking at their build. They're looking at the way that they want to create the structure of their team. And so this year, what I did was I practiced a little bit ahead of time going into 15 team drafts and doing some mocks to get an idea where guys were going, to get an idea where I felt comfortable with my build and how I was doing that. And so this build started very differently from what I thought was going to happen for me where I was at. And so I do prepare differently for it for two reasons. Number one, I want to make sure that I'm on par with the best players that I think are available in the, in the Midwest area of the United States, which is what you guys are. And I also want to make sure that I don't do something stupid, like impulsively. I, and I did that the first two years that I was drafting, right? Like I'd get to like the sixth or seventh round and I'd be like, I'm going to take a risk. This is not the time to take a risk. This is not the person you take a risk with, right? The Edelbrotter Mondesi, you know, com- complex that I have that you and I have talked about offline several times, you know, like this is the year. I know it's going to be the year. And you can't take that kind of risk when you're playing against great players. There's places where you can do that. And I'm learning that as I go. But I feel really strongly that to prepare for this, you got to really put yourself in that element ahead of time and know what you're doing. If you have a four hour slow draft, yeah, you, you don't, it, there's not as much preparation that you need to do for that, in my opinion. 
I think there's two things there that you said that I think are super clutch. And I, they're lessons I wish I had known earlier because they would have made some drafts I did a long time ago radically different. One is the queue. Having your queue filled with not just a couple of guys that you want, but six, seven, eight guys you want. It may not seem like a big deal in a low-key draft. In a draft like Glarf, it's a huge deal. It is not uncommon for all of your guys to go right in, right ahead of you, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. You, you know, you, you're in a normal draft. You get sniped by the person right, right around you once or twice. In Glarf, I have seen my entire queue empty yes. <laughs> on the other yes. side of the board. And I'm like frantically trying to refill it and come up with backups. And so if I don't know, hey, if I don't get Tristan Cassis, I'm going to go for Josh Young. Like I, I have to know that on the fly. Like I can't make that decision over a cup of coffee. Like you correct, were saying. Correct. Correct. You know, and I think the thing that's remarkable about that too is like, this was the first year, right? So I'm, I'm an original Glarf member as you are. And this is the third year that we're doing it. And the first year that I was there, I fully admit, I was completely starstruck. I felt like I didn't belong there. I felt like I was with players that I had been reading about online. And I was like taking pictures of people and sending them to my family. Like, Hey, I'm in a room with this person. This person's an expert. And they're like, yeah, we don't care. (laughs) Like, you know, it's fantasy baseball. Nobody really cares. Right. But, but I did, and I was dumbstruck and I, and I did not draft well. I know, I knew that I didn't draft well. And, and then last year I felt a little more comfortable, but this year was the first year where I was like, okay, you know what? It doesn't matter who's in the room. You know what you're doing. You've been playing a long time. You know what your process is. You know what you're good at. You know what you're not good at. Use that knowledge in this room. And what happened to me this year that made me feel really good when I left was that what you're talking about with the sniping. When I'm in a room with you and Jenny and Dave, you know, and both Daves, you know, and Lucas Beery, who is a shark, by the way, right? So good. Right. And you're in a room with these people and you're sitting there going, okay, well, Lucas looks across at me and says, oh, you sniped me on that guy. I I know that I'm getting in the mindset of being a better player when players that are better than me are telling me that I sniped them. And I know that that's a really simple thing, but that hasn't happened before to me. This is the first year that that happened for me. And I was really excited about that because I felt like my team was really solid leaving. Uh, I was really happy with it. So, Yeah, I like your team a lot. My draft software likes your team a lot, too. Um, you know, it's interesting that you talk about about sniping. And I want to go back to one other thing that you mentioned in your initial remarks, which is the idea of the mock draft. I do a ton of mock drafts. I do them on draft software or I do them like I'll I'll just join like a, you know, $50, 15 team mm-hmm. league to see what's going on and just to just to get my feet wet. A little bit. I did a handful of gladiator drafts this year to do the same type of thing. And even with the slower clock, it just gives you a better idea of where people are actually going and what is actually happening in these rooms and where you can wait on guys and where you can't. Like one of the things I learned from my mock drafts and my earlier drafts is that Nico Horner was going to go at a place where I was not going to be able to get him. Like I mm-hmm. really wanted Nico Horner. I think that he's a great middle infield option. I love that he's going to have second base eligibility in addition to shortstop eligibility about 20 games into the season, I think second base is super weak. And so that's mm-hmm. a huge upgrade, in my opinion. If you can get a guy who has a shot to hit 300, he's going to steal 15 bags or so, hit you 10 home runs. I think he's a great player to have there. And also, he was going in a place where I was going to have to like forego a Taylor Ward or something. And I was just like, yeah. there's no yeah. world where I'm going to pick Nico Horner over Taylor Ward. Like, I can't. Like, that's not a that's not a decision that I, as a player, am going to make. And it meant that I had to look somewhere else for those second base middle infielder options. And I had to be okay with it. Um, But if I hadn't done that prep work, I would not want to do that, make that decision on the fly in the Mm -hmm. draft room. Like you said, Mm -hmm. it's too easy to all of a sudden 
you don't have your cue filled, you don't have a strategy three rounds in and you've lost three rounds. And and there's a couple of places where the board can get away from you and you have to recover. Oh yes. Yes. That's for sure. There's no doubt about that. No doubt. Yeah. We're going to get into that. Uh, there's a couple of places where that happened to me and we're, we're going to talk <laughs> about too. that a, a little bit, but I, I want to talk KDS for one second, mainly because it might be new to some of our listeners. It stands for uh, Kentucky Derby style draft preference. And I'm not going to lie. The first time, the first year we were in Glark when Dave McDonald asked for all of our KDS, I literally had to go to Google and be like, what is KDS? Mm -hmm. Um, And frankly, like fantasy stuff is not the first thing that comes up here. So I'll start with um, KDS lets you rank the picks that you want. So instead of, you know, you just get the first pick or the second pick, if you get the first pick, you get to pick your slot. So you get to pick, I want to pick eighth, not first. I want to pick ninth, not first. Um, I'm curious how you rank your KDS this year. I've heard arguments for going at the top of drafts. I've heard arguments uh-huh. for going at the middle of drafts. I've heard arguments for going at the end of drafts. There's obviously reasons uh, to do any of those strategies. I'm curious what your strategy was going into Clark. Um, <laughs> it's really pretty simple for me. I wanted, fi- I wanted the fifth pick and I got the fifth pick. And the reason why I wanted the fifth pick was because I wanted the people in front of me to make tough decisions that would make my build become more clear to me. And, um, I, what I what ended up happening for me that I I, I was sort of anticipating that it, with the fifth pick that I would get Aaron Judge, and I don't have any builds where I did that this year. I Judge this is the only league that I have Judge rostered in, um, and it's not because I don't like the player. I mean I love the player. It's just that I, I really looked at what I had done in years past and thought, boy, where do I really lack at the end of a draft? What do, what do I leave the room lacking with, and what do I feel most comfortable chasing in Fab? Because full honesty to all the listeners here, I am not a good fab player. It is something that I am learning. It is something that I have taken my lumps on. I can't tell you the number of times in the last year where I lost out on a player by one or two dollars and then had money left at the end of the year. And I was like, wow, that was a waste. I I should have gone in more. Um, I, I wasn't thinking about it properly. So I really ended up with the with the build of getting judged with the first pick. Um, I, I, with my first pick at number five overall, that kind of set the tone for me. It's like, okay, I know that I have this, like I'm hoping for 40 to 50 home runs. I'm hoping for 10 or 12 steals an average. That's going to be pretty good. And then I, when I know that I have that foundationally, then my second pick, what I really, and I will say that I did this. I, I had targeted Marcus Simeon, um, way high, knowing that I wasn't going to get a third baseman any of the top three or four third basemen that I wanted to me, that's a pivot for me. And I didn't want to go pitcher there. I wanted Simeon because I wanted that bankable. I'm hoping 25 home runs and 20 about steals um, to solidify that spot there. Cause then I don't have to think about it. Um, and that to me opened up possibilities for me as I drafted with the queue and looking at that. So I, I, I wanted both of those guys and I was able to get both of those guys and that kind of set things in motion for me. Um, in a good way, I felt. Yeah, I really like uh, the top of your draft here. And and so just for people who may not have the draft board up, it will be linked in the show notes. So you can take a look at it there. But um, the Michael Govier had the first overall pick. He took Ronald Acuna Jr. Dave Swan took Jose Ramirez second. I took Julio Rodriguez third. I'll talk about that in a second. Jake Hallisker took t- Kyle Tucker uh, fourth. And then Mike took Aaron Judge right after that. Trey Turner dropped all the way to sixth here. Marty Tallman got him. Uh, with the sixth pick. But I, you know, it's funny that you talk about you wanted people to make hard decisions for you. I kind of 
I got my first pick for KDS too. I I went three for my first pick and eight for my uh-huh. second pick. And the reason uh-huh. I wanted three is because I thought, oh, I'll have a shot at Jose Ramirez or Trey Turner. Right. Like, I'm going to have one of those guys fall fall to me. And I was talking to Jenny Butler um, about this the night before at dinner, and I was mentioning that just by sheer happenstance, like every league that I was in this year, TGFBI, uh, Tout Wars, Glarf, I wound up with picking within the first three. Like I got mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. early KDS instead of that middle KDS. And I have a lot of, of Jose Ramirez. Like I have Jose Ramirez in Tout Wars. I have Jose Ramirez in TGFBI. I have Jose Ramirez all over the place. And she was like, you know, you should go with an outfielder first. Like yeah. you've already done the third base thing first. And, and, you know, there's scarcity at both of those positions. So it obviously makes sense to take a stud at one of them. But she was telling me that at dinner. And so I'd already made up my mind that I was going to take whichever of Ronald Acuna or Julio Rodriguez dropped to me. And then Dave made my decision super easy by taking Jose Ramirez second because he just wasn't right. an option for me. And so I started with Julio Rodriguez and then I was lucky enough that Nolan Arenado was still available on the comeback. And I, I didn't trust letting Nolan Arenado go. I thought Govier would take him for sure. So I just grabbed my third baseman right there. It was funny because I thought about that too. And I had Simeon queued up and I was like, I really wanted Simeon. And the Arenado was there, and I was like, I was like, oh, you know, if I don't take Arenado here, then that's gonna be it's gonna be a while, right? To, until I can g- get back in here. And so uh, I made the decision to go with Simeon uh, just because uh, I want those in my mind. I want those bankable home runs and stolen bases in my first three or four picks if I can get them. And uh, Simeon just fit the, the the thought that I was having about how to build it. So. You know, and Simeon's been a target of mine, too. And I think that if you had taken Arenado, I probably would have gone with Simeon if he was still there, uh, because I really like Marcus Simeon for all the reasons that you said the 2020, you know, I know he got off to a slow start last year, and that could be structural, like it could be something with Texas and the humidor and the changes to the baseball, and it might happen again. But his recovery from last season leads me to believe that he'll also recover this season if that does wind up happening. So I'm not worried about Simeon as a player. And I love him. Uh, as a second base option, I think that, in my opinion, the places where scarcity most exists on the draft board this season are third base, outfield, second base, and closer. And you kind of yeah. have to make a call that you're going to you're going to prioritize three of those. I don't think you can Correct. prioritize all four. Like you're gonna you're you going to lose out on one of them. So you have to prioritize yes. three of those, and then you have to like play. You have to be okay playing off the waiver wire, finding some late round options on the last one, and you just have to be honest with yourself about it. You absolutely do. I love what you just said about that because I think I've tried to think about that in a different way and say, oh, is there a way that I can get all four of those things and be really super solid? And you can't. You just can't do it. You're going to have to speculate somewhere. It's just a question of where you feel most comfortable doing that speculating, in my opinion. Yeah. And so in uh, my instance, what I wound up doing with my first three picks is I went Julio Rodriguez, Nolan Arenado, Emmanuel Classe, and I decided to just get my closer right there and then and not have to worry about having an elite closer. And, and, and what you did was uh, you went with Aaron Judge, Marcus Simeon, and then Aaron Nola, who I think is an excellent source of wins, which is it, that's another category that is super scarce on the waiver wire. It's really hard to predict. It's not an easy thing to just go out and find a 20 win guy out there. So I really like what you did with your first few picks. Yeah, I, I, th- thanks, thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. I was looking at that too, and and I really Nola's a guy that I really like that I don't often get. And so when we, when I was looking at the board and I saw, you know, it was Cole and then Burns and then Strider uh, and then Sandy went at the end there. Govier took him in the uh, second round, 
And I had my pick there, really. I was like, okay, I could go Woodruff. I could go Radon. I could go Scherzer, Wheeler. I really didn't want to do Scherzer or Verlander. I just, I have a thing in my mind about guys that are at that age. I'm an old guy myself. Like something's always hurt on me. So I'm like, I don't know if I want to do that. Radon, after having been a White Sox fan, I wasn't super trustworthy. And so my thought process was really between Nola and Woodruff. Because I have shares of Woodruff in other places, I pivoted and went to Nola. I like what you said about that, Sarah, because I think if you have if you do the same build every time in every league that you're in, and I've done that, it's a it's a nightmare waiting to happen. You talk about having a fab disaster when somebody gets hurt. So this year I really kind of to use a stock market term, I wanted to diversify the portfolio a little bit. And so that was really the prime reason why I went with Nola. Plus, I think He's probably going to get over 200 strikeouts again pretty easily, I would hope, if he's healthy. So I wanted that base. I wanted that. I wanted an ace that I could just hang my hat on and say, this is the guy. And hopefully it works out for me. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it, it very well could. I, I like Aaron Nola and that. I think he's kind of underrated. He's a sneaky good starting pitcher. Number one, you know, I just talked about one of my favorite picks of the Glarf, the Glarf draft. I really love Julio Rodriguez. It's a little bit of a different move for me. I don't generally go for the second year guys. I think that there's usually a sophomore slump, but I trust the tools with Julio Rodriguez enough that I think he's just going to be a stud and it will be okay. Um, my uh, my second favorite pick of this draft was actually getting Hayden Wisniewski in the 21st round, which is looking like a guy. he's had you... such a strong spring. And I, I just cannot imagine a circumstance where he is going to lose a starting pitching job pitching the way he is right now to anyone. Not to Kyle Hendricks, not to Drew Smiley. Like some some guy in there is going to get hurt. Hayden Wisniewski is going to be the number three starter for the Chicago Cubs, in my opinion. And I got him way late in this draft, which was nice. Yeah, he was a great pick. And I, honestly, I, you've been talking about him for six months. And so I figured at some point that you would that you would grab him. And I, I think he's a great pick, too. Uh, he really does have a lot of upside. And uh, I, he's going to have an opportunity. And that's really all you can really ask. Absolutely. So I'm curious, uh, who are your two favorite picks of the Glarf draft? The two picks that you were like, yes, I did it. I'm very excited. Well, you know, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I wanted to really kind of leave... I I pushed pitching down far because I was willing to take a risk on some starting pitchers that I thought were coming back from some fluky injuries. And I, I really wanted to make sure at the end of 10 rounds in my mind, I sort of had an idea that I wanted to have a, a good closer and I wanted to have three really good outfielders. I wanted to have three bankable outfielders. And so at the end of 10 rounds, I had Judge, I had Adolis Garcia, and I had uh, Giancarlo Stanton. So I I like that idea. I mean, if Stanton stays healthy, it's a huge if, obviously, always. But what I really liked was what I did 11, 12, 13, where I I had, I took Chris Sale. Um, My good friend, Dave Funnel, has been on me about Sale and says, you know, you have to stop Dis, you know, discounting the guy because his injury was fluky. It had a broken finger. He fell off of a motorbike. It, it, these weren't arm injuries. And he's a young 33. He hasn't thrown that much the last couple of years. And so I took him as an SP3, hoping that I can maybe get a little bit more out of him. I had taken Nestor Cortez in the eighth round, which I thought was a really good value where he was at. Um, and so obviously, as you'd mentioned before, I had Nola, but I had Sale. And then I, I went with Kiebert Ruiz because I wanted to make sure that I locked in two good catchers, guys that were going to play, guys that had a little bit of upside. So I've got your 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 love, Wilson Contreras. Uh, I'm sorry to do that to you, my friend, but I took him really early because I wanted to have him. I see him in the background there. And uh, and then I went with um, McMahon 
and I needed a third baseman. And I felt like he was the last one there that I thought was going to be able to provide me with some bankable statistics and that he was going to be playing half his games and cores and that he's still a pretty good player. And so I was pretty satisfied with that. Then after that, I had, a, I have some questions, you know, but I, I was really happy with that middle part there. That went better than I thought it was going to go. Yeah. Um, I, I love the Wilson Contreras pick there actually. And, and I like you pushing him up, honestly. I, I've watched uh, in a lot of drafts that I've been in this year, it seems like people push Wilson Contreras up. And I think that's because they know that if you let Wilson Contreras get back to me in the seventh, he's mine. Like that's it. Yeah. I, we're done. Like I, I will take Wilson Contreras in the seventh all day. Um, that is not just because he's my favorite player. It's, it's a couple of things. One, I think fantasy baseball should be fun. It is fun to have your favorite player on your team. You want to root for your guys. I like having guys that I can cheer for on my team. That's not true for every draft pick I make, but I do have a handful of guys that I really want on my team and it's fun to invest in them and to cheer for them all season. And Wilson is one of those guys for me. But two, I really think, you know, they say don't sign a guy or don't uh, draft a guy after he signs a big contract because he's going to struggle in the first year of a new environment, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. That is not Wilson Contreras. No. Wilson Contreras is a dude with a chip on his shoulder who was not supposed to get called up to the majors. And then he certainly wasn't supposed to never go back to AAA. And he was not supposed mm -hmm. to be a three-time all-star starting catcher. And he was not supposed to be the dude who took over for Yadier Molina. And he mm -hmm. wants to prove to the entire world that he belongs and he can do this every single day. And he wears his heart on his sleeve while he's doing it. And I just have a hunch that going over to the St. Louis Cardinals in that new environment, he is going to be hair on fire trying to mm -hmm. earn every penny of that contract. And he is going to mash. He's a really, really good hitter. And frankly, like the only thing that is a question mark with Wilson Contreras is his defense. And that yeah. doesn't matter for fantasy purposes. So in my opinion, Wilson Contreras is the dude to draft a catcher if you can. Yeah. I mean, to me, I, when I looked at it, I thought this is in my mind, I thought maybe the third best catcher in the draft. I mean, just based on what we're thinking. I mean, I, I think, I think Salvi's kind of, on the way down a little bit. And I, I felt really comfortable taking him there. I thought this is bankable 25 home runs chip on the shoulder, going to a really good team, hitting in a really good offense. And like you're saying, I think he's going to play like his hair is on fire. He's already doing it in spring training, you know? So I think he's out, he's out to prove that he's the real deal. And I, 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 he didn't need to prove anything to me. <laughs> I knew he was the real deal already. So I, I really wanted to make sure I was stable there because what I've done historically is get, one really good catcher and then one kind of crappy guy and like he gets banged up or he just, you know, the Jacob Stallings of the world that I think are going to play and might, are not going to hurt me. But this year what I wanted was catchers that were going to help me. And I feel like I did that with both of those guys. I hope. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you definitely did. And that's a strategy I like to deploy a lot of times too. I actually did not deploy that in this draft, although I did take William Contreras in the seventh for two reasons. One, like I said, I like to have fun. And I what what would a Sanchez team be without a Wilson Contreras on it? I did the same thing in Tout Wars. When when a Contreras got taken on one end of the draft, I had to have a Contreras at the other end of the draft. But the second thing is I where, so Wilson and William did this like brothers thing for Marquee Sports Network where they, you know, answered some questions about each other. And when they were asked um, who the better hitter was, Wilson said his brother. And I don't think Wilson is the type of big brother who would say that just to like, you know, flatter his little brother. Like, I think Wilson Contreras truly believes that William is the better hitter. And everything we saw with the Braves last year indicates that is true. He is going to catch for the Brewers. The Brewers need his bat in the lineup, and mm -hmm. they, they've struggled offensively the last few seasons, and I just think that William Contreras is going to mash in that environment, and I'm excited to see 
what happens there. We are going to take a quick break for our sponsors, but don't go anywhere. On the flip side, we're going to talk about whether our favorite picks were a happy set of circumstances or strategy. We're going to talk about our least favorite parts of the draft, and we're going to evaluate the draft board overall, who whose drafts we really liked in this league, who we think has a really stellar team, but first a quick break. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. All right, so Mike, we're talking about your favorite picks, my favorite picks. Um, I'm just going to be honest. I think that my favorite picks were both happy, a happy set of circumstances and some strategy. The Julio Rodriguez pick was obviously strategic, like Jenny and I talked about it the night before. I knew I was going to get one of Ronald Acuna Jr. or Julio Rodriguez or Kyle Tucker. Like that was going to happen somehow. Um but the Hayden Wisniewski thing, really, he just kind of fell to me. And I was at a point where I was like, he's the best pitcher on the board. I need a pitcher. And so Hayden Wisniewski, come on down. And I'm feeling really good about that right now. It was a question mark when I made that decision because we didn't know if he had the fifth starting job. I think we do know that now. The only guy who could possibly take it from him is Javier Assad, who, by the way, I'm watching Javier Assad deal on the Cubs spring training game as we speak. And that, what that dude did in the World Baseball Classic was unbelievable mm-hmm. against a it really was. stacked Team USA and Puerto Rico lineup. So thank you for existing, Javier Asad, and I'm glad you are a Chicago <laughs> Cub. Um, but I'm curious about you. What were your favorite draft picks? Did that go as planned, or was it just kind of luck? Um, no, I mean, I I think things went pretty well for me, uh, at least in the first 12, 13 picks. And then I, I kind of went in a little bit of a strange area there um i my my favorite my favorite pick probably i love willie adamas um i i think he's so underrated and i there were guys that were getting drafted ahead of him where i was like i think adamas is better than that guy and so i took i took him in the seventh round obviously we'll see how that plays out but you know this guy hits 30 home runs and he plays every day and i think in glarf and in leagues that i play in like with people like you guys that are so good at at, at playing i really want at bats like i want to get guys that i know are going to get 500 600 at bats and max out those playing opportunities for me and adamas really does that and he feel like he kind of flies under the radar and then right behind him i got nestor cortez who i thought because he i got a little bit of an injury discount there i i, I thought he should have been going ahead of some of those other guys like i i personally think he's George Kirby went in the round ahead of there. Marty took him. Um, uh, Doug took uh, Blake Snell. Jerry took Gilbert. And I was like, I, I like Cortez better than all those guys. So um, I, I felt really happy with that. It was fortunate. And some of the places where I didn't do as well, we should talk about those too. Um, I wasn't oh, super we're, we're going to. Yeah, we're going okay. to. Okay. It's, it's coming up. Um, it, it's funny, though, that you were uh, mentioning the places where – you know, you saw value in in guys that other people had not taken yet, right? Like you saw Nestor Cortez as being a little bit better than some of the guys who went right before him. Like I had a couple of moments like that too. Was Nesky was definitely one of those moments. Um, I felt really similarly uh, when I took Alex Verdugo, who I think is just a really high floor player. Like I, mm-hmm. I like having Alex Verdugo as one of my outfielders because I think he's going to play every day and I think he's yes. always going to hit 270 and he's 
always yes. going to get 15 home runs and he's always yes. going to steal some bags and he's just constantly yes. going to be in, a, in the mix for a Boston Red Sox offense. But the other thing that you said that I really want to flag for people, because this was the lesson for me the first year I played in Glarf, playing time is king. Playing yes. time matters to me more than anything else in a draft. And I, the first year we were in Glarf, I made some really silly strategic decisions that uh, in retrospect, I know why I did them. Like I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I can get 30 stolen bases from John Birdie. But the problem is you can't put John Birdie in your lineup every day because John right. Birdie doesn't play enough to predict that. And so you don't know when those 30 stolen bases are going to be. And while you're waiting for John Birdie to get his 30 steals, you're losing runs. You're losing RBIs. Mm-hmm. You're losing mm-hmm. other, you're losing home runs. You're losing counting stats from some guy who's in the lineup every single day. And so last year, the biggest draft uh, lesson that I took into all of my drafts and had a really good season was always prioritized playing time over the guy who is the flashy one tool player. And that paid off for me a lot. And I think that that's one of the reasons the Glarf draft is so hard. The guys with 500, 550 plate appearances go fast. Everybody in the room is drafting for playing time. Yes. Yes. And you get to about round 18, you're going to start getting some warts, right? Like there's going to be some people in there that you're like, okay, this is a bit of a crapshoot, but if I look at the playing time and I see the upside, you know, like I heard the snicker when I drafted Joey Gallo, I heard it. But, you know, the thing is, is like Kirilov is hurt, who I also have. Um, and Gallo is probably going to get some first base time. And so it, left alone, he might hit 30 home runs and, and he could come back. I, he's not going to hit for a high average. We know that. But he's good, a good defender. The Twins signed him to an $11 million contract. That to me indicates that they're planning to play him and not sit him on the bench. Um, he's going to get some playing time. Well, and he's got to be one of the guys who benefits the most from the new shift rules. There's, I mean, one of the things that I was willing to do this year with drafts overall, and Gallo's a great example of that, probably the most extreme example of this, honestly, is the dudes who sell out for poolside power have lost so many hits into the shift over the last five or six years. And so a guy like Kyle Schwarber, a guy like Anthony Rizzo, a guy like Mm -hmm. Joey Gallo, they can sell out for poolside power now in a way that they maybe couldn't before. Like they kind of had to go to the opposite field sometimes because there was always that dude standing in short right field who was going to take away their line drives. And I I mean, at least for Schwarber and Rizzo, that is not going to be the case anymore. It does seem like some teams have decided they don't need a left fielder with Joey Gallo and they're just going to put their, they're just going to move their outfielders and shift the outfield. So that'll be interesting to see what happens there. But um, yeah, I like the Gallo pick a lot, honestly, because I think that, he probably benefits from the new rules and 30 home runs is hard to find at that point in the draft. Yeah. And he was a guy that I, you know, I didn't have him queued up right away. And then as we kind of were sifting through it, I was like, okay, who looking through it? Like you were talking about at bats. Like I start looking through it. I'm like, okay, who's going to play? I don't want short side of platoon. I don't want, you know, I don't want to be, be dealing with any of those types of guys because you're right. Like you, birdie is a great example, right? You fall in love with this idea of like, Oh, Wow. Nobody's taking this guy. He can give me 30 stolen bases, but he might hit four home runs and hit 220. Like, he's not going to help you. Those empty one-stat category guys don't help you unless – the only way that I see that helping, and I'd be curious to see what you think about this, there are times where when I take guys that I know are selling off for power and are going to hit 210 that I can take an Arise or a McNeil, and I did that in two rounds in a row in this draft because – I wanted that batting average help. And they're not going to be total zeros in the other spots. They're going to score runs, but they're not going to get a ton of RBIs. not going to get a ton of home runs. not going to get a ton of steals. But I needed that batting average stabilization. Like, I don't want to have a team that hits 230, you know? Yeah, I think that you can 
pair guys together to mitigate the worst parts of their game. But I think that that's best done with three or four category guys rather Mm -hmm, than mm -hmm. one category guy. So like that makes sense to me with a guy like Gallo. Every time that dude hits a home run, he's also getting runs. He's also getting RBIs. He's not going to steal you any bases. His batting average is going to be low, but he's going to give you three categories pretty reliably and he's going to play. A guy like Birdie is a one category guy. He's not in yeah. a good lineup. He's not going to hit for a lot of power. He's not going to be score. He's not going to be scoring a ton of runs. He's not going to be scoring a ton of RBIs. And so the one category guy versus the three or four category guy, I'm willing to do some pairing off there. I love Jeff McNeil. I think he falls way too far in drafts. I have a ton of Jeff McNeil this year. In fact, I might have Jeff McNeil on this team. Hold please. I don't remember if I do or not. No, you uh, don't because I do. <laughs> no, you do. You have Jeff McNeil. Jeff McNeil and Luis Arias are two guys that I am always willing to draft, and I did not get them this time because Mike got them first. But uh, I think that those dudes are underrated because the batting average that they give you and you have a high batting average, you're on base a lot, you're on base a lot, you score runs. You score and you runs, score right. Up, like that's you know no longer a one-category dude. I just really tried, I think, overall with the team this year, I really tried to make it be better rounded than what I've done in the past. And and that will that remains to be seen how that's going to play out. I mean, I think towards the end, I, I, really, I really wanted to get offense because I don't, in, in fab, I don't do real well getting hitters. I always, I always seem to underbid. I always seem to do okay with getting pitching. And so, I purposely kind of targeted wanting to get guys that I thought were going to get a playing time and at bats like Gallo, Eduardo Escobar in New York. Like, I, I don't know if that's going to work out. I really don't. But like, I thought, boy, where he's going, like, that's a good, that's a guy that could hit 20 home runs easily if he's playing and they love him. And I think he's going to get an opportunity to play, but I went with pitchers at the end because what I started to think about was people like you, because what happens for me is what is going to be the acquisition cost of a Brian Bayo or an Ashby when they come clean and they're ready to go Luis Ortiz from Pittsburgh. Like it's going to cost me a fortune to acquire those guys down the road. So I, I, I took a chance. I know all three of those guys are hurt or not going to make the team. So now I've got a whole different problem that you and I were talking about earlier about my bench spots and what I do with that. But I thought about it from that standpoint, Sarah, of like, what will it cost me to acquire Ashby when he comes free? And, and when you're in a league with Dave McDonald, you're going to get price enforced. That's that's the way that, it, right? He's going to price enforce. I think Dave McDonald spent all of his fab in like June. He did. <laughs> Dave had no fab. I was looking at, I was like, I think Dave has no fab for the last three months of the season. And frankly, like Dave is a great player, by the way. So this is no shade to Dave. Dave but Dave will price enforce early in the season, which means that, you know, if you're banking on getting yourself a Josh Lowe and he gets called up by the Tampa Bay Rays, you are not going to get that player because you're Dave not. is going to spend 224 of his thousand fab dollars to get that player. And if you know there are people like that in your league, then you have to be prepared with to go with what you have or to spend a bunch of money to cover what you don't have, which is a situation exactly. I'm going to find myself in with this Reese Hoskins thing. And, and it's <laughs> actually a nice segue to the next question I have, which was, what was your least favorite part of your draft and why? And I'm, I'm just going to come clean with mine. I gambled on the oblique injuries that Seiya Suzuki and Tyler Glass now had in spring training in the 10th and the 11th. Um, they were both kind of listed. Well, I think Glass now we knew was moderate and that he was going to be out for six to eight weeks. Seiya, the Cubs were a lot cagier. They didn't really say what his timetable was. And it seems like say is actually progressing quite nicely. He's been hitting off a tee and he's been, you know, he's about to take some soft toss and he might be okay. 
Um, but I am really feeling it right now because putting two injured players on your bench in an NFBC league where you already have a short bench means that the second Reese Hoskins tears his ACL and Nolan Arenado is day-to-day from playing in the World Baseball Classic, you all of a sudden mm-hmm. have a world of hurt and not enough bench spots to fill any of it, which is where I yeah. find myself with those 10th and 11th picks. Oh, it's absolutely the truth. And I, I think that that's where, you know, looking back at my draft, you know, we talked a little bit offline before we started that um, I have some significant risk in my rotation with my pitching. You know, I, I also took Jack Flaherty in the 17th round, which is, uh, you know, if he's the number one, somebody said it the other day, if he's the number one starter for the Cardinals, they could contend. If he's the number three starter, we've got problems. Um, I, and I, I, I like I like the idea of taking the risk on him. I took risk on Austin Meadows and Esther Ruiz, who is actually going to make the team, they said today. But the one thing that I didn't do that's sort of mind-boggling for anybody who knows me, and I probably find it humorous, and I can poke fun at myself because I don't take myself too seriously, but like, I didn't get enough saves. Um, I had I took Ryan Presley early on because I firmly believe, like in this league, like if you get one anchor guy that's going to get you thirty to thirty five, you can kind of build around it. So then I went with AJ Puck, who I'm hoping against hope will end up being the closer in Miami, but it's hard to say. And then my last two picks were Andrew Chafin and Will Smith. Will Smith had just signed that day, I think, with Texas and. I'm not totally sold on Jose Leclerc, although he's a wonderful pitcher. I, I don't I don't know. Bochi is an interesting guy and does weird things with bullpens, and he loves Will Smith. So I'm hoping that that love of Will Smith will will translate to some saves for me. Otherwise, I got problems. But that was the one spot where I was like, I got to the end, and I was like, dude, where are you? Gonna, where are your saves? Like, I'm a bullpen guy. I write about bullpens for fan tracks, and I totally blew it off. You know, so. Uh, we'll see what happens, but I was not super thrilled with my end there. I, I I I probably should have speculated differently and elsewhere as opposed to what I did. Um, yeah, saves are going to be an issue for me too. I I mean I picked up Plasse early, which is nice because he's probably like a thirty-five to forty save dude automatically off the top as long as he stays healthy. But my next closer, my closer two is Daniel Bard. We just watched Daniel Bard kind of fall apart in the World Baseball Classic. And please, Daniel Bard, don't have the ifs against you <laughs> to be a guy who can get me twenty to twenty-five saves for Colorado. And then um, after that, I kind of, I mean, I don't know, man. Uh, AJ Minter might be lucky for me because of the yeah. situation in Atlanta. Like I could get some saves out of AJ Minter that I, I was really just like yellowing at that point. He was my second to last pick in the draft, but no, no right, idea right. if that's going to work out or if he's still going to be the setup guy. Well, I mean, personally, I, I know a lot of people were talking about Jimenez right off the bat, but I really think, I, I think Minter is the better choice for them. And uh, I think he's going to get five to 10 saves anyway, even if Iglesias is healthy. So You'll get something out of them there for sure. And good ratios. Yeah, I'm just hoping I don't get a zero there again. One of the things that I definitely did last year is I had to punt saves early because I just didn't have the closers. I didn't want to pay up for them in, on draft day. And and I wound up winning the league, but it really cost me in the overall. Like I couldn't possibly do anything in the overall because I I was out on a category from like, yeah I don't know, May. Like I think I punted saves in Glarf in May and just started racking up wins and racking up Ks instead because I knew that there was nothing I could do on the saves front. But but that's a brilliant move though, right? Because what you end up doing is well, a lot of people will look at the state the, the stat categories and think, oh, what do I need to do to get up, make up, make this up? And you looked at it early on and said this is a loss. 
where can I augment what I already have to try to get those extra points and earn that? Whereas I think other people sometimes look at that and say, oh, I'm going to catch up. So I, I think what a lot of people don't do when they look at the stat categories is look at the person that's directly below them and look at the person that's directly above them and figure out what the best bang for their buck is going to be. And that's something that I feel like I really learned from you guys after the first year was I'm looking at the I'm looking at where I'm at, but I'm also looking at the people that are directly above me and directly below me to see what I need to do to be able to maintain where I'm at, but then also try to grow in something either. And you're right. I mean, the one thing that we do know going into stack categories in these leagues is that you will never be able to salvage uh, the ratio category. You can't save batting average. You can't save ERA. You can't save whip. So you got to protect those things at all costs. Um, know what you're doing. Look at those numbers. I know a lot of people will look at it the wrong way, I think, and they'll say, oh, I got a guy that's going to get me 150 strikeouts. I got a guy that's going to get me this, whatever. But if he gets a 1.5 whip, you're, you're screwed. I mean, it's not, it's not going to go well for you. You, you, can't, you can't roster guys like that, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's one of those situations. I love what you said about looking at the standings and, where, and being realistic about where you can make stuff up. It's one thing if you're like five saves out of – jumping three or four points and you're like trying to find those five saves on the waiver wire you're 20 saves out in may like you're not doing anything it's like this is a lost cause like go get go get something else right right and and i and really realistically i mean you're gonna need fewer saves this year to be competitive i think right i mean i think we're all pretty sure of that don't you think i think so but we'll we'll see what ends up happening it'll be interesting to see i'll be Um, really watching that (laughs) yeah me too uh is there a team in this league, not yours, not mine, because we're right here and, you know, I could compliment your team all day. You could compliment my team all day. Uh, is there a team in this league that you think is just stacked? Like, who did you look at and you were like, oh, man, that's a great draft? Yeah, you know, um, I, uh, I I looked at it and I've spent some time kind of looking at it as well. And, uh, you know, it was my my first experience this year um, dealing with uh, Maddie Wood. And I really liked what he went ahead and did. You know, he uh, he started with Otani, and then he had Strider, Radon, and Romano, then Corbin Carroll, Dansby, Melendez, Pena, and Kershaw. And then he came in with Fairbanks. I'm like, this guy is like, I really like what he did there. And And the one thing that I liked about what he did was, unlike me, he didn't crap out, you know, as, as he got into like the last five or six rounds. He took guys that are going to be able to make some contributions. Now, yes, he's got... Ian Anderson, who got sent down, but I think he'll be back. And he's got Lucas Sims, who is a guy that I had queued up as well in my thought process. And I was like, oh, that back. And I'm like, I'm sort of a Lucas Sims apologist. You know, um, my friend Doug Dennis is a huge uh, Lucas Sims guy and has always kind of gotten me involved in that. I really liked what he did. Um, And I also really, and and kind of taking a a dive at it too, I really liked what, uh, what Eric Halterman did. You know, and I and I didn't really know him very well before meeting him on that Saturday, and I looked at what he did, and I thought, wow, this is obviously everyone knows the name and or should know the name. Um, he, he's a brilliant player, and I, I really liked what he did too. You know, um, he um, he started with uh, Jordan Alvarez, Riley, Robert, and then he went with Degrom, who might not be as big of a risk as what people are thinking he is. And then when Edmund, Kirk, Pasquantino, Bednar, Hunter Green, Santander, Freddie Peralta, I'm like, this guy, like, this guy knows what he's doing, you know? Now, I know you said you don't want me to talk about your team, but I thought you did an absolutely brilliant job 
uh, strategizing how you came up with your team. Like, and I, and I, I had sort of gone back and looked at how you had drafted last year, because I'm always interested to see the people who won, what did they do that was different from what I did? What can I learn? And, and to me, that's one of the questions that you asked um, in, in the, in the, the script as we were kind of going through what to talk about tonight. And I'm of the ilk of, you know, I'm 50 years old. And I've been playing fantasy for a long time. I played with my friends in college and neighbors and relatives and generally always finished in the money and and started thinking that I was a pretty good player. When I got into GLARF, when I got into TGFBI, when I got invited to do some of the on the wire type of listener podcasts, when I started to get into, I drafted in Arizona this past year when we were down there for first pitch. That's, that's how you get better. You get better by playing against people who are clearly better than you. And I will say this, and I, you'll laugh, and you'll say, oh, no, no, no. I'm the worst player in Clarf. And it, it, no, it's true, but I'm learning. And this is the first year that I left that table where I was like, I did a good job tonight. Like, I felt really good about not only being among friends who have similar interests in eating pizza and drinking way too many of those funny margaritas at the bar that we went to afterwards. No, no. But in all seriousness, you learn by playing against people that are better than you. And um, I admire the people that are in Glarf at a really high level as players and also as people. But the best part about it is going out afterwards and having that conversation about, like, being able to bend your ear, being able to talk to Jenny being able to talk to both of the Daves, like that's the stuff to me that, that you take mental notes of that stuff and say, I can always be learning. I can always be better than what I was last year. And I don't make any bones about it. I've finished in the bottom half of, of the league both years that I've been in it. That's not going to happen this year. And I feel really strongly about that. I learned some. I learned from some very valuable mistakes. I drafted differently because of the mistakes that I made. But then I also looked at the people around me and saw what they did. And I said, when I did this, what could I have done that would have been better for the bottom line of my team? And I, I think people don't review that stuff as much as what they should. I love what you just said there. I I actually, so I go back and do kind of a review of like, hey, what worked? What didn't work? That type of thing. But I think that we don't do that in the industry as much. Like when the season ends, people start looking to the next draft, right? They're like, what? Exactly. how am I going to draft in 2024? Not what went right and wrong with all of the moves that I made in 2023. Like why right, right. did... Like, you know, if I if I fall out of contention in this league because I don't have a real first base situation and like Reese Hoskins tore his ACL, Matt Mervis went to triple <laughs> AAA and he's holding up a bench spot for me because I can't drop him because I need those 30 home runs in the event that the Cubs right. ever call him up. And now I've got Joey Manessis as my starting first baseman. Like, that is what it is. Like, I that's a fluke and I can't do anything about it. But if I do poorly the next year because I keep drafting John Birdie, even though I knew that the playing time situation was what it was and it was just 30 steals like that is a problem so not making the same mistake the next year requires that you go back and not just review your draft process review everyone else's draft look at how people made those waiver wire decisions right like you and I were both just joking about this and I'm sure Dave is listening and knows like (laughs) Dave is going to win all the early hitters who come up because he is willing to pay a lot more in fab than the rest of us are willing to pay he's willing to put down 25% of his fab budget in April and I am not and like I know that I know that is true Yeah, I, I, I think the thing that I really always that I the other thing that I would add to what we're talking about is that this was the first year ever too 
that um, I didn't stop playing when the season was over. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, I, I've always taken some time off. I'm like, Oh, I'm not going to write. I, I took a break from fan tracks for a little while. And like, I'm not going to write anything for a while. And, and that's fine. But really I, I started getting into my first drafts in like November and started kind of looking at strategy, looking where I had made some mistakes, but any, and I don't have a lot of free time, right? I have three jobs. I've got two kids. Like, but anytime that I have that free time at like 10 o'clock at night and everybody's going to bed, I'll have a question in my head about that. And so like, I knew that you won last year, obviously. So I went back and I looked through not only what you did draft wise, but then I also looked at fab. What did Sarah do in fab that I didn't do that I can learn from? And I think that in the, if we could take that lesson and extrapolate that into the world at large, we'd all be in a better society. You know, you always can learn something new. You're always capable of learning until the day that you die. Until the day that you shuffle off the mortal coil, you should always be learning. And I I really am invested in being a better player. And I went from being a guy who walked into a room thinking that I was going to be one of the better players in the room to really getting my ass handed to me the first two years. And I feel like I learned some lessons. We'll see how it works out this year. But the thing that I loved about it was that afterwards, when I was talking to you and Jenny and Lucas and the two Daves and Jake, was people saying, oh, I liked what you did there. And, th- and that made me feel like, okay, maybe I'm starting to get a little footing and being a better player. Like anybody can go into their neighborhood league and kick the shit out of it and win it, right? And you'd be great. And you think that you're a great player. You, you get into a league like this where you're playing against people who are like writing strategy articles or are hosting their own podcasts and have people that are seeking them out to get their opinion. It's the real deal. It's the most fun thing I've ever done. And I hope that I get to play in it for the rest of my life, as long as there's Glarf, because it is such a fun thing to do. And it's a fun thing to learn. And the, the camaraderie is great. We've got our own Twitter chat that we got going on. That's pretty funny. Um, of course, you've got people like Dave, you know, texting people at three o'clock in the morning because he doesn't sleep. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I sometimes I sometimes have to remind those guys. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm a school teacher, right? Like I. I got to be at work at six o'clock in the morning while you guys are just getting ready to go to bed. Happy times in Vegas. But it's really been a pleasure to be able to be part of that. And I can't speak highly of it enough. I mean, I think anytime you get an opportunity to play in a league and you get invited to play, it's, it's really, uh, it's an honor. It really is. I mean, I, I, I play in more leagues now than I ever have. I think I'm in, I think I'm in 12 this year, which is kind of like my, my sweet spot. I think the year before I was like 16, 17, it was got to be a little bit too much for me just based on where I'm at in my life. But it's such an honor to have somebody reach out to you and say, Hey, would you be a part of our league? It's like, yeah, absolutely. You know, like I love it. So I know I'm rambling, but I love playing with you guys. And it's been one of the pleasures of my life in, in baseball to be able to play with you guys. It's terrific. I really love what you said about that post uh, draft hangout, mostly because um, last year, if you recall, we were drafting, it was St. Patrick's Day weekend in Wrigleyville. And if you're an old fan of like Deadspin article, like before zombie Deadspin, real Deadspin, they actually used to do like a Wrigleyville police scanner article once a year, because it truly is one of the places you do not want to be on the Saturday closest to St. Patrick's Day. And that just happened to be when we could all draft. Um, And so everybody wound up leaving a little bit early, except for Dave and Jake and myself. But we wound up heading over to Nisei Lounge and chatting a bit. And Dave and Jake gave me like a really candid debrief of my draft, which was like pretty cool. And frankly, uh, helped me identify early some places where I needed to make some waiver wire moves. There were some places where they they had concerns that I didn't have concerns, but I right, heard right. their feedback and I knew why they had that feedback. And it was I was able to 
incorporate, they think I'm doing this, I'm doing this other thing and it'll work out, it'll be okay. But it also, you know, raised some red flags like, hey, these guys who are really good players know that this is a risk that I am taking here, right? Like last year, I, I think I had Ramon Laureano on my team and he was suspended and I was just going to have to sit on that for mm-hmm. like however many games. It was like going to be like months, right? And like, how how was that going to work out with having that guy on my bench um, that whole time? It, it wasn't going to work out well, let me tell you that. Uh, it did wind <laughs> up working out, but it was one of those situations where I, I just, I hadn't thought about it the way they had and hearing their feedback on that was really helpful, which leads us into the final question that I'm always going to ask on the show. Uh, You know, Mike, what is your one best piece of advice for a newish fantasy baseball player who's thinking about joining a harder league, maybe thinking about joining an NFBC league for the first time, putting some more money down than they're used to putting down? What, what would you tell that person about uh, fantasy baseball? What you, what, what's your advice? Just do it. (laughs) Keep, you know, I kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but the whole, the keep on learning and the keep on growing and, don't go into it thinking that you're going to be the player that you think that you are in that moment. You know, you when you're coming out of leagues where you've usually in the money or, you're, or you've been dominant, or even if you don't play for money. I mean, I don't think money is necessary to, to you know, be involved with if, if you're not interested in doing that or if, you, if you're gun shy about it. I mean, it is, it is an expense. I mean, our league, it's $150 to get into. And there's other leagues that you and I both play in that cost money more than that as well. What I did was, um, <laughs> this is t- totally true. I went to my wife a couple years ago and I said, I'm getting invited to play in these higher stakes leagues. Can I take a portion of money and use that to invest if I promise to never ask you for money for it again? And she said, yes. What's the number you were thinking? And I think that the numbers that we were thinking <laughs> were a little bit different, um, to be totally honest. And um, I just asked her for a nest egg. I said, can I take like $500 and just see what I can turn this into? And she allowed me to do it because she knows that I'm passionate about it and I like doing it. So th- that's a lot of money. And I'm not saying that you should take $500 to go talk to your spouse or significant other and, and take the money from them. But get into leagues where you know there are good people where you know there are good players. When you get into TGFBI, you're going to be against good players. When you get into like Earth Leagues, you're going to be playing against the best. I, I firmly believe that. I think that the best players are playing in places like that. And the other thing that I would say is this. While having that conversation with other people in your league is wonderful, and there's no replacement for the camaraderie that goes along with um, having that conversation, when you know what your process is, when you start to understand what it is that you're trying to do and you build and you do the mocks and you do those things, be confident. Don't be cocky, but be confident. And if you lose, you lose. If you win, you win. But go into it with the right mindset of saying, you know what? I can play with anybody. And I did that this year coming into Glarf. I, I, I came in and I thought, these are my friends first and foremost. I consider everybody in this room to be my friend. So that made me comfortable right off the bat. And then when I looked at it and said, you know what? I'm a pretty good player too, damn it. I'm not bad. I, I'm okay at this, you know? Um, I can take some of this money and get us to Michigan for the, a week in the summer, you know? Like, that's, to me, that that made me feel more confident. And I'm like, I know what I want to do. I know where I can get this guy. I think I'm just going to go do that. And so I, my confidence level this year was the highest it's ever been. So you're going to go in. You're going to take your lumps. Play against people that are better than you. And for the love of God, if you have a question, ask it. The worst thing that somebody can tell you is no. I can tell you, the folks that are listening, when I've, whenever I've reached out to people that are my league mates in Glarf, they've always responded. 
They've not tried to hide information from me. They've not tried to say, oh, I'm playing in a high stakes league. I'm going to be playing against you in another league. I'm not going to share that secret with you. Ask, learn, grow, develop as a human, develop as a player, and just keep trying to do that. And I, I, I by no means I'm saying that I'm an expert, but I, I have been involved in more leagues in the last couple of years. I feel like I've learned more in the last two years that I've been playing than in the last 25, if you put them all together, if that makes sense. It does make a ton of sense. And I love what you said about just asking your league makes and honestly asking people in the fantasy baseball community generally. It's it's funny, you know, you mentioned having a little nest egg that you could set aside for entry. <laughs> I kind of did something similar where I was like, OK, well, I'm going to I'm going to pay into this handful of leagues this first time and then I'm going to take the winnings and I'm going to use that to do more leagues or to do first yeah, pitch Arizona, exactly. which I went to for the first time this year, which was a blast. Wasn't that great? Oh like, God, it was so first fun. First Arizona was incredible. And I was so nervous to go because it's just like, I don't know, like there are a lot of women at first pitch Arizona. And I was like, what is this yeah. going to be like to go show up? And like, and it was honestly the best experience. Everyone was lovely. Uh, I felt like a celebrity, mini celebrity. Every time I entered a room, people were so kind and wonderful and just like introducing themselves to me and making sure that I felt like, I belonged in this fantasy baseball community, which was really great and amazing. One of the things that specifically with Glarf that I think is so cool, there is an overall component and everyone in that league is competing against each other. But more than anything, we want Glarf to win the overall so that we can have the, so that we can give the pot to the charity that we choose, right? So that we can have the bragging rights to say that Glarf won Earth. And Glarf has won Earth back-to-back seasons. Two years ago, it was not particularly close. Last season, it was really close. There were were a handful of leagues that were right on our heels. And if you were in our Discord or if you were in our Twitter group, I mean, everybody was just giving recommendations for how to get any of those points back. Nobody wanted wanted Glarf to lose Earth, and they won the league, but Glarf lost Earth. And it was the coolest thing. One of the highlights of my fantasy baseball year uh, this last year, we decided that the charity we were going to uh, donate to in the event that we won was Lost Boys Inc., which is a wonderful charity here in Chicago on the South Shore neighborhood that makes sure that there are little league and softball leagues for young uh, people in the South Shore neighborhood. Levante Stewart runs that league. He's incredible. And mm-hmm. we were able to donate about $3,500 to Lost Boys. And they came, had some pizza with us. We hung out with the kids during the draft. It was one of the highlights of my year. And so I think that leagues like this often have a camaraderie in them because there's a component of the league succeeding, right? Like, yes. I feel like, yes. you know, Dave does a great job being a cheerleader for Glarf. Like, hey, get your fab bids in don't don't abandon your team no no inactive players like nobody wants to win a league because there were inactive players people want to win a league because they were playing against the best and the best played to win exactly right you know it's funny you were talking about being at first pitch and for those of you that are listening if you're ever even contemplating going and you can do it you absolutely have to go because I was in the same boat two years ago I went down there not really knowing very many people I was in the room for 15 minutes and I met Justin Mason and his wonderful wife Danielle who's clearly, clearly his better half, as we all know. Um, and he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm just hanging out. He's like, we're going to go to lunch. I said, oh, okay, I'll see you guys later. He's like, no, you're going to go with. And I was like, it was him and Dave and Danielle. I mean, it was just, it was great. The funniest part, though, for me last year, two years ago, was I was sitting down in the lobby responding to some emails from work or whatever. And um, one of the mem- one of the people who was there walked up to me and was like, 
are you Mike Carter? And I'm like, are you about to issue me a summons? <laughs> like, I, I didn't know, I didn't know what they were. They were like, can I ask you a couple of questions about bullpen? So I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I was like, okay. Um, but it's funny that people know who you are. And if, if you do work in the industry um, and you write and you do podcasting or whatever, people catch up with you and you get some really cool opportunities. You know, um, Eric Cross got me on at Fantrax and um, it, it was life-changing for me, you know, um, to be able to be on a really great platform with really great people. And uh, Doug Anderson is my editor and helps with all those things. And it's just such a great thing to be part of. And, you know, you never know going into it, what it's going to be like, you know, and um, just people being cool to each other. Like we need more of that in the real world, you know, like it's just, it was such a great experience being down there. Plus let's face facts, Sarah, getting out of Chicago in November, going to Arizona, not bad. (laughs) Yeah. The weather was not particularly great in Arizona this year, but it was a sight better than it was in Chicago. And we got to see Matt Mervis win an MVP in the Fall Stars game so that the Cubs could replace him with Eric Hosmer and Trey Mancini for hashtag. Well, sure. You know, sure. That's Iowa. But you know, that's, that's for my, that's a rant for my other podcast. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining me here today on the second episode of what the fab to recap the Glarf draft part of the earth league, which is honestly one of the coolest networks in sports. Mike, what are you working on at the moment and where can people find your work? Well, geez, well, I've been told repeatedly by people I have the worst Twitter handle on the history of Twitter. My Twitter is at MDRC0508. I invented that several years ago when I was following my daughter's fourth grade class on Twitter for some project they were doing. Never thought in a million years I'd be in a position that I'm in. But I, I write uh, cover the bullpens at Fantrax. I'm also going to be taking on some other things here now that as we get into spring uh, doing some uh, other types of pieces for fan tracks as well, doing some more strategy type things and whatever Doug asked me to do, I'm happy to do. And then I write my more narrative pieces and prediction type stuff for nine and know it all, which was my, my first foray into any type of writing about baseball. Um, and I'm also doing the fantasy baseball beat, which I'm really proud of with Carlos Marcano and Chris Torres. They, um, when I was asked to do that, I, my initial response was no, I didn't think that I should. I didn't think I had anything uh, to offer that those guys couldn't do on their own. They're fantastic people. They're better people than they are hosts. Uh, we're, we're trying to just get uh, fantasy, not fantasy writers, but ba- baseball beat writers to come on and talk on the show with us. We've also reached out to some players now. We're trying to get some players to come on with us too. And na- navigating that, obviously they're all a little busy right now with spring training, 10, 12 hours a day. So that hasn't happened yet, but it's been a real blast to have people on. It's been really well received. We got nominated for an FSWA award that no none of us saw coming. We thought it was a joke. Um, my phone like literally blew up on a Sunday. I had like fifty some messages. And I was like, "What is going on?" And uh, we we we're just so grateful. And people really like seem to like it. And uh, it's been just a great uh, fun having you know, talking about baseball with your friends. The only issue that we really have is that oftentimes. And Carlos lives in Costa Rica, so he doesn't always have uh, Wi-Fi that works. The little things that you take for granted here living in the Midwest, right? So, But we've been really fortunate. We've, we're having a blast. I'm having a great time doing this stuff. Thank you so much for inviting me to come on on this Friday night. It's a pleasure to be on with you. I love talking with you. I love getting your opinions on all things fantasy. And I think you've got a great idea for the podcast, Jared. I, I definitely will be following and sharing as it gets posted out there on Twitter. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Mike. I, this was a wonderful conversation. It is exactly the vibe that we're leaning into here on What the Fab. You can follow us at, on Twitter at, at What the Fab. You can follow me at, at BCB underscore Sarah. Uh, the show is dropping now, so it's probably in the process of getting to your podcast aggregator of choice. But once it gets there, please subscribe, follow, leave a five-star review so other people can find the show. And if it's not there quite yet, uh, check back tomorrow. We'll be back each week on What the Fab, a fantasy baseball show where there are no silly questions. Until next time.